everyone, it's Debbie McGee, known as the lovely Debbie McGee. It's my brand new podcast, Spill the Tea with Debbie McGee, in which you will find out whether I'm really lovely or not, or whether it's just a myth. But I hope that you'll join me every week to hear different stories from my life. You know, what motivates me, what's happened to me, who I've met, and how I met my late husband, Paul Daniels. That's in Spill the Tea with Debbie McGee. Spill the Tea with Debbie McGee. Hello everyone, it's Spill the Tea with Debbie McGee again. And boy, have I got a bumper podcast for you this time. This is a name that you might not have heard of. Andy Nyman. He's an actor, writer, producer. He's been in numerous movies and produced, and he's also got a fountain of knowledge about magic, which is how I got to meet him, of course. And he consults with Darren Brown and loads of other magic shows. He's just a one-off. I just totally love this guy. He's very special. He's very humble. He's very comfortable in his own skin. And you'll find out what I mean. Here he is on Spill the Tea with Debbie McGee. Spill the Tea with Debbie McGee. Welcome back to Spill the Tea with Debbie McGee. And my next guest is someone who I've wanted to spill the tea with for a long time. Um, I've been a fan of his since I can't remember when, actually, because he's done so much work that's so creative. And I've actually finally got to know him just really properly in the last few years. But we're usually surrounded by people, and it's Andy Nyman. Hi, Andy. Hello. We're not surrounded by anybody, not even near each other now. No, absolutely. Just sort of a plastic screen. Yeah. Um, so when you know, whenever I've met up with you, it's usually I've come to see you like recently on Fiddler on the Roof, and yeah. uh, which you were incredible in, and I don't, and you got a, a couple of nominations for your role in that, didn't yeah, you? Yeah, I have. Yeah. But I've wanted for a long time to just sit and chew the fat with you about how it all began, because mm. you know you have magic as a hobby. But, yeah. you know, you write a lot of Darren Brown shows and consult with him. But you also, your bigger career is, is acting and writing and producing, isn't it? So, yeah. you know, as a little boy, where was Andy brought up and, and when did this all begin? So I was born and brought up in Leicester, mm. uh, where my mum still is, still in the same house. My oh. dad's no longer around. Mm. Um, so she's still there. I haven't seen her for 13 mm. 15 weeks or something mad mm. um and i always knew that i mean from the age of 12 debbie i knew that i wanted to be an actor and it was just it was a mix of things really it was about the creativity of it and i did some amdram and i was sort of lazy at school i was academically i don't consider myself bright academically but i was i had aptitude but i was lazy at school and the only thing I sort of applied myself to was messing about and acting. And my mum um, said, found there was this little sort of stage school in Leicester um, where you could go and do dry, uh, drama classes. So I went and did that. And then from that, um, and this is going back, you know, uh, where are we? Um, 1984. 
Mm. Um, I went to do A-level drama. We found a college in Melton Mowbray near Leicester that had one of the only A-level drama courses because it wasn't a thing then like it is now. So I did sixth form drama. And then from then I went to Guildhall Drama School in the Barbican and then left there 1987, which is ridiculously... God almighty, 33 <laughs> years ago or something. So, so, so I'd always, I've always loved acting and that's my first love. That's my major career. And then all the other things are these amazing, wonderful hobbies that have just sort of happened. And, you know, I would, you, I'm watching movies and you pop up everywhere. <laughs> and you always have a very good cameo role. Yeah. And so I'm sure you won't mind me saying, because it, you, it's not like your name would fall off people's tongues like a George Clooney or a Brad Pitt. Yeah. But Andy Nyman, you know, your work in the movie industry, it, there's so many I could list. So can... How did you get into movies? You know, that's a real. I mean, it's really funny, Debbie. You know, because I grew up. The thing that really cemented for me that I wanted to be an actor was being a kid and going to see Jaws at the pictures. And you know, I'm a short. I always have been as a kid. You know, short, stocky, curly-haired Jewish kid wearing glasses and there I am age 11 or 12 whatever I was watching Jaws which as a film I just blew me away anyway but there was Richard Dreyfus, this mm. short stocky curly haired Jewish guy wearing glasses and I saw this guy and it was like everything connected for me um, and I really thought, because up until then, I'd sort of thought, well, to be in films, I knew I sort of wanted to act, but it felt like you had to be Paul Newman or Robert Redford, you had to, or Brad Pitt, you had to be one of these perfect creatures, you know, <laughs> that are, don't look like the rest of us. And seeing Dreyfus was like, oh my God, he just, I kind of look like him, he's sort of normal. Mm. Um, so I then, it became very real to me that, I, that films was the thing that I really, really wanted to do. So when I left drama school, it, it's funny, you know, and you've, you've been in showbiz your whole career and your, most of your life. And, you know, there are certain things that at the moment doing anything in the business feels like an impossible dream. When will we ever get back on stage or backstage, you know? But when everything's motoring and it is what it is, being in a show, being in a theatre show, whilst it's hard to get that work, feels very tangible. Mm. Being in films feels like an impossible dream. And being in Hollywood films feels like, wow, how does, how does one do that? And I'd been an actor for 13 years and I'd always been, not well, not arrogant, but I was confident about my own abilities, and I'd always had an idea about who I was and who I, the sort of work I wanted to be. So I was always picky, and I'd always used magic, my hobby, as a way of paying my bills or paying my mortgage or taking care of my family, rather than doing acting work that I didn't want to do. So I'd been sort of trying to take charge of my career as best as I could, and I got a film, an English film 
which is a, a long story that I won't go into, but it, it was a film uh, based on a Martin Amis novel called Dead Babies. I mean, literally the worst title in the world. Um, but that's part of the book. It's not about any actual dead babies. It's just about a group of fairly hideous students. And that's the expression that is, that's the worst possible thing you could imagine. So this movie was going to be a really big deal and it was an amazing lead for me. And it was a brilliant cast. It was me, Olivia Williams, Paul Bettany, really fantastic actors. And it ended up vanishing. But in my head, I'd achieved my lifetime's ambition. I'd played a lead in a film. So I then went to LA and with a, a pack all about that film, this is before it came out. And I met agents and I met casting agents and I worked very hard at doing that. And I went back and forward to LA. I've done that for about 20 years now. And I ended up getting a job the first time I went out there that was a, a, a film for American TV uh, called Uprising. It was about uh, the Jewish uprising in the Warsaw Ghetto. And it was really star-studded. It was a big deal for American TV. And then... But then when you've got a couple of those credits, it seems to snowball a bit because people can either, you can either show them this is what I've done in a showreel, but also your confidence in that area grows a bit. You know, I, well, I can do this. So when you're going in for auditions, like, and, and it's pretty much always an audition. You know, when I did, I did, um, Judy, the, the Renny Zellweger, Judy Garland film. And I've got, you know, it's a wonderful part that I play in that, but that's an audition mm. and you're going in and meeting them. And, but over the years, you know, I've developed, you develop sort of some relationships, but these were people I didn't know, but it transpires they've seen your work, but you're still going in there, working hard at the audition, taking a risk, which it always is. I think you always have to take a chance and have a go so mm -hmm. that's but now i do look at my career and think uh, i can't quite believe it mm. but it's his funny debbie the amount of times because one of the things i've loved about acting that i love about acting is i love looking different in things mm. i really really that really excites me trying to lose yourself in something and the amount of times I'll have people say to me, oh, have you seen blah, blah, blah film? Um, oh, you should see it's really good. And I'm like, oh, I'm, yeah, I'm in that. No, you're not. Who are you in it? Oh, I'm that. No, is that you? And I have it. It happens so often to me. Um, mm. So I love that. I kind of, I love the anonymity of it that, mm. you know, that, that I can do all of that work and have done all that work for so long and there's oh, still a mystery about it. I, well, I'll, I'll just sort of butt in with one little thing. Is that one of the reasons that you won the Bachelor of Science? Um, <laughs> in false identity in, biomechanics? Yeah. <laughs> what was so, that about? <laughs> that is about the that I, I've got lots of bizarre interests so I, I have a thing I have a bachelor uh, a bachelor of science in a thing called um 
false identity bio, um, biomechanics and the first person to have it. And it's about the, it's the study of how people create false identities for themselves mm -hmm. online and false pretend they're people they're not and the ease with which you can do that. So I think that that's a fascinating area. It really, and it can be anything from the photo you choose to put up mm. as your ident on Zoom, with like what we're doing now, or, you know, and you can write and be people on, on the internet and people have no idea who you are. So that, that area, the, the psychology of that really interests me. So I kind of did some work on that. Yes. I was, I, when I read it, um, you know, I was lo obviously looking up some facts about you and I actually didn't know what biomechanics meant. So no, I don't think anyone really does. Yeah, yeah. It off and I thought, oh no, that makes sense of being an actor. And now yeah. you're, you're telling me that you love having a different identity and different roles, which you certainly have in all the roles you've played. As you said, you look completely different. And sometimes um, when I've watched and I think, I know you're in a particular movie and I'm looking out for you and I think, is it Andy or isn't it? You know, which yeah. But what I'm loving, Andy, and when I'm doing my podcast, um, I think it's really lovely to get to know people. Yeah. Um, but for people listening as well, is to learn something about, you know, the person. And as what you said a little while ago is actually, you know, you knew who you, you know who you are. Yeah. But more than that, you're comfortable in your own skin. Yeah. And I... From, you know, now I'm a lot, a lot older and I'm older than you. What I really find is that when people become happy with who they are and they're not trying to be, you know, the most glamorous person or you're not trying to look like Brad Pitt, you yeah. just are who you are. We as a public or we as a friend feel more comfortable with you. Yeah. And I think people who are comfortable in their own skin become more successful because you don't expect things of you that you're not going to achieve. You yeah, I think, I think you're absolutely right. And I think there's, there's a lot to unpick in that, actually. Yeah. Because especially now where, you know, we're in this very odd period that on the one hand is, you know, scary and weird and mm -hmm. for a lot of people deeply lonely and you know, there's a massive question mark on where it's going to end. Mm -hmm. um, and then on the other side, there is also a sense of real calm mm -hmm. and time for reflection and time for really introspection and, you know, making relationships work. And I, th I think it's been a really interesting time. One of the things I'm really interested in and again we're recording this so if this is something you're not comfortable with then we don't even have to talk about it but one thing i've noticed a lot with people is that you know if i think about the you with paul mm. and the you post paul i had no idea who you were with paul but the you post paul it's like there's a rebirth and I noticed that a lot. I know I've noticed that a lot with my mum's friends, you know, when they've been widowed or the other way round, you mm. know, where widowers, where there's a sort of, there's a sink or swim about who you are and what you want to be. Mm. And I find that amazing really that, that we can, as you say, the more comfortable 
you can be with yourself and the more you can understand and accept that life's life can be really hard mm. and perspective on ambition and what one wants out of life is really, really important because at times I found myself getting a bit anxious this morning and I'm not someone who gets anxious, but I was listening to the radio and it wasn't the news that made me a bit anxious. It was the traffic report because there has been this sense of emptiness and calm that's been with us for three months and suddenly it's like, okay, well, there's been a breakdown on the so-and-so, so-and-so, and on the A40, there's been a this and a that. There's heavy traffic on the A4 coming into London. And, da, 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 da. and there was this sense of, oh, my God, all these things that distract you from life, that make you busy, that make you get away from who you are. And I think that's the biggest, one of the biggest lessons for me within this mm. is just trying to retain the kind of the sense of calm. And I realize that's a blessing because there are many, many thousands and thousands of people who this has been a nightmare for, of course. Mm -hmm. um, but I think being comfortable with who you are, there are so many factors that go into that. Mm. But that that's the key, isn't it, Debbie, to try and get to the heart of that. Yes, absolutely. And, and, um, moving on from that, but as you've brought up, you know, the traffic and <laughs> that we've all got used to the peace and quiet mm -hmm. and that most people that I've spoken to in lockdown are less worried about the money. They think that they'll deal with it. It's a problem, you know, it's a stress and the business, it, you know, if it's going or they're losing their job, but they believe that they will maybe next year, but somehow get through that. Yeah. But they, what they've realized is it's just this time of reflection has made them think about the people they really care for. Who are they missing seeing? Yeah. What are they missing doing? And, it, and as you said, it makes you realize the important things in your life and what's your priority. Um, going back to you, Andy, yeah. you know, this wonderful career, because I've seen you in some really funny movies. And, yes. uh, but of course, one of your most recent ones was Ghost Stories, mm. which you, am I right in saying that you were going to put a production of it on in the West End? Well, something you've written. Yeah, yeah. So Ghost Stories. So myself and Jeremy Dyson, who's my oldest friend, we wrote that. Mm. And we, and we first wrote it, um, gosh, I think it's like 11 or 12 years ago now. So the first production of it was, um, we wrote and directed it and I starred in it. And that was at the Lyric Hammersmith. And then it went into the West End and it ran mm. for 13 months. And then it went all over internationally. And then it came back into the West End. It was at the Arts for 13 months. Mm. And it went away again. And then last October, November, December, it was in the West End for a third time. Uh, it was at the Lyric Hammersmith and then back in the West End again. And that time, um, actually, my son, Preston, was in it, which was an amazing thing. And then that was out on tour. And then that tour, as you know, it mm -hmm. did 
eight of its 16 weeks before lockdown happened. So yeah, so Ghost Stories has been, and then we turned it into a film, of course. Yeah. And, um, and this is what I love about you because you're so humble and um, you throw these things away. <laughs> You wrote it 12 years ago and how patient you have been and probably have the perseverance of I don't know who because we both know how hard it is to get anything on anywhere. Yeah. But to get it to be made into a movie, you know, we haven't got enough time today to discuss all of that, but that is hours and days and months of pushing. Yeah. It is pushing, isn't it? You know, yeah. And so for you, it must have been amazing, a to get it on the stage, but then to get it to be a movie. Well, it was incredible, and the thing I, I often think is that I, I've worked very hard at sort of retraining myself in terms of trying to be in the moment and appreciate things, because the tendency is to just posthumously look at your achievements and think, oh God, yeah, that was, that was amazing mm. to do that, actually. That was exciting that I did that. And I, I've really tried over the years to soak up the moment as it's happening, to get to the theatre early, to sit outside the theatre, to look at it, to arrive on set early, to pinch myself and think, oh my God, you know, this is what you dreamt of as a 12 year old and you've made a career of it. And mm. I think that I, I honestly, I love it so much. So the thing I think about stuff like getting the film on, that is one of those things that only posthumously do you look at it and think, how the hell did we do that? Because yeah. when you're in the moment and you're making it work and you're pushing for it, there's a goal and mm. you're just, every time there's a hurdle that comes along, you deal with it, you take the blows, you pick yourself up, you get back on and you think, okay, so how can we make that better? How can we fix that? You know, and you just keep thinking and keep doing it. Um, but then when you get, look, you know, Debbie, that it's that thing, if you're in a run of a show, you get to the end of however long that run is, two weeks, six months, 13 months, and you collapse. Yeah. You get a cold, you feel awful, you run down, and yet somehow the energy that we've trained for, that, you, that is the mindset and yourself being fed emotionally by doing this thing that you cherish, just keeps you going. Yeah. It always amazes me that. So one of the other things that I really try and rail against a bit, actually, is it's never been cool to be enthusiastic, which I am. I mean, it's so, it's so the thing, the cool thing to be offhand and ah, whatever about it and about oh, eight, seven shows this week. I'm exhausted. I just can't tolerate it. Yeah. Because because A, I think it requires of you nothing but love. And also, there are millions of people who would do anything to do what I yeah. get to do. So to be offhand or glib about it or ungrateful for it, I find 
revolting when I'm when I'm faced with it actually I can't I don't like it in other people mm. and again that's not to say there aren't times where you have to say sorry I'm not doing that because this doesn't feel right and you, you have to be pragmatic it's still your job mm. but I think the fuel the passion is everything absolutely uh, totally and I think if you it's like anything if you love what you're doing you can keep going when you're you know working on an ounce of fuel yeah loving it you know absolutely yeah. what you said i mean is- i saw yesterday and oh, I, actually yeah. i was about to say and you end up you know inadvertently inspiring other people that's not why i'm doing it and i'm not yeah. saying i've been an inspiration yeah. to people that's not what i mean but, but yeah. when i look at people who are like that so yeah. you look at what you did on strictly at whatever age you were in your late mm. 50s mm. It's amazing. You look at it when I'm getting up thinking, oh, my bloody knee or my elbow. You know, I saw a clip online yesterday of Fred Astaire. I can't remember what it was on some TV show in the States doing this. It was him and a, a, I don't even know the name of the woman. He was 67. Debbie, it is it's <laughs> absolutely mind blowing. Hmm. And phenomenal to just see that's not just about I mean yes he's been blessed with a particular genetic aptitude and yes he's worked very hard at it but that is about positivity and loving it and soaking it up and feeding his yeah. soul with what he loves endlessly yeah. and you can see you can see it it's incredible yeah it gives you energy yeah I- um, what I love about your energy, Andy, is that you always seem to have all these projects going on, but you have time to write and, yeah. you know, want to thoroughly recommend your two books on acting. Oh, thank you. The Golden Rules of Acting. And I know you've had great reviews for them and people saying, you know, this is the ultimate. Yeah. Um, but they really are good. And I think they're good for anybody just going into show business to to learn about everything yeah i mean really they they were books there's golden rules of acting and more golden rules of acting and they were books that i i didn't write set out to write books these are just bullet points that i have made for me over the past Mm. 25 years from learning lessons myself and seeing other people do things that i think oh that's brilliant remember that Mm. or oh my god don't ever do that you know whatever that those things happen to be and what i realized when i'd written them is not only is it about being an actor uh, and it's not about how you act it's how you survive and how you survive as a freelancer and the reality with those books is it's any freelance you just change the word actor for for dancer singer painter architect (laughs) yeah you know it just doesn't matter because it's just a and clearly some things are more specific to um to our world but I think that, and I've noticed this when I go and talk to actors or drama schools or whatever, is that we have to be, understandably, things move at such a pace now, we have to be so very cautious about what we say and Mm. where we say it and how we say it. And one has to be super clear about your intentions. and, And at times it feels really, really confusing. But one of the things I've noticed and one of the things that I slightly railed against Um, with these books is that I find there's a lack of pragmatism because people are afraid to talk about 
within the arts, for instance, that it is a job and you have to behave in a way that is professional. Mm. And so very often if I'm at drama schools or, and I'll, I'll very often be asked, look, you know, handle go up. I suffer from X anxiety or I've got this disorder. I've got that, 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 what, you know, I struggle. What do you suggest? And I think that I've noticed there's such a, a sense of relief where it's like, look, everyone's got their own stuff and you have to deal with your own stuff. But ultimately you have to know within the framework of what the business is, how do you take that and make it work? Because so often now people have, you know, the, the approach has to be very soft because you have to be so careful. So that's one of the things that I've, that, that the response has been fantastic about is it's so the, the advice is just pragmatic and just, mm -hmm. Well, Andy, I'm loving talking to you. I could talk to you all day. Yeah. Uh, so before we go, um, I know also, I think another thing about you being so grounded is that your family is very important to you. Yeah. And I can remember the first time I met your son, Preston, was at the spoof Hamilton. <laughs> and I was with Paul Keith and we were sitting behind you. Yes. And... Your son has already got your wise head on his shoulders. Oh. He's just such a lovely boy. And Thank you. So unassuming. And, you know, showing off for him, he was, at that time, he was in a movie that George Clooney was directing. Yes. And he was so humble about it. And Paul knew about it, Paul Keefe, and said, you know, and said, come on, tell us what's it like. Da, da, da. And you could see he was almost embarrassed to say he was doing it. And I just thought how lovely that someone at that age, yeah. you know, doing some wonderful work, but not showing off. And I'm sure at his age, I would have been telling everybody, you know, but he wasn't. Um, and well, I know lovely wife. Um, Sophie as well. Yeah, These, and there's my daughter. You've never met Macy either. No, I haven't, uh, no. An actress as well, and they're all. We've been very blessed with you know we're a very close family, and you know we've lived within. A, look, we're, I'm not going to pretend we're hugely eccentric as a family, <laughs> as well. But I think we're very not just those glasses. <laughs> no, <laughs> this is the most normal thing about us. Um, you know, we're very comfortable within our eccentricity, and I think that I've always made a huge effort to kind of bring the family anywhere I could in when I've been working on set, or if I'm if I'm in the West End, they've I've always tried to get a dressing room that was big enough that they could be there at night, because. Otherwise, that's one of that's one of the really difficult things in this industry is if you're working, you know, it's great and wonderful and exciting. But how the hell are you supposed to have a family life? Yeah. So that we've always made it work. But also without the support of a brilliant understanding partner, which Sophie's, you know, we've been married for the best part of 30 years. You know, she, I would never have been able to survive it without her. Mm. So, yeah, I, yeah, I'm very lucky. Well, listen, long may the success continue. Let's hope we're all through this shortly. And, uh, you know, who knows what there might be on the horizon. Oh, I know. I, I hope know. our paths will cross. It will. And I can't wait to see you, Debbie. And thank you for asking me. This has been absolutely lovely.
Oh no, just I've loved spilling some tea with you, Andy. <laughs> Spill the tea with Debbie McGee. You know you want to. A lot of knowledge in that interview, so I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Um, well, you know, we're still in this strange, strange situation, aren't we? Of not quite locked down. We can go out, but do we feel safe going out and things like that? And uh, also, I'm like everybody else. Well, not everyone, but lots of my friends. We've all put on a bit of weight in the lockdown, which I was finding really hard, actually, to lose. You know, sometimes it's harder to lose a few pounds than to lose a few stone. Um, and then my lovely friend, the chef Giancarlo Caldesi, I was having a chat with him last week and I said, right, Giancarlo, I'm going to have to, for probably the first time in my life, actually go on some sort of diet. And uh, he said, but darling, remember, just cut down your portions. And of course, that is what it is. And I found that in lockdown, because you're more relaxed and I'm not rushing off somewhere, I'm not sort of gobbling my food down like I normally am and then rushing off. I'm sitting, relaxing, eating, and then you can eat more. So if anybody's like me out there and you're uh, struggling with a bit of weight, yes, up the exercise, go for more walks or like I'm doing, getting out on my bike a bit more. But also um, it is just, you know, cut down a bit. You know, mine is instead of, instead of having six chocolate biscuits, I'm just having two, you know, and, and that's hard because when I really fancy more, I want more. So anyway, I'll look forward to talking to you next time on Spill the Tea with Debbie McGee when my guest will be the chaser Paul Sinha who is just a delightful chap and uh, so I hope that you'll tune in with me then until then stay safe spill the tea with Debbie McGee you know you want to